I want to do something different this morning. Normally, I, we, I read the text that's going to be on the screen, and then I pray. Today, the text is a prayer. So I want you to stand with me, and I want you to read this very familiar text with me. It is the Lord's Prayer. Let's read it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. You may be seated. That is my prayer. That is our prayer today. So I'm not going to pray. We, we just did. And I pray that, the, that, that, I hope that you didn't just recite those words, but that you truly prayed that prayer. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a message on love. And at that time, I suggested that love is perhaps the most important word in our Bible. Now, I'm going to talk about a different subject today. And, and I don't want you to think that, okay, he said two weeks ago, love was the most important. Now he's saying this is the most important. I, it's not pitting one thing against an, an, another at all. I maintain that love is probably the most important word in our Bible. But I want to talk to you this morning about a subject in the Bible that is not equally important, it's not more important, it's not less important, it's different. My, my purpose this morning is not to place one over another, but what I want to do is I want to emphasize this morning how vital it is that we understand this concept from our Bibles. And, and let me tell you how important this, this concept is, this subject is. It, we read about it, first of all, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and we read it throughout the Bible all the way to the end of our Bibles in Revelation chapter 22. Most theologians that I've read through the years recognize this particular subject as being Jesus' favorite subject, that he talked more about this subject than any other subject. We just, read, we just read it in the verse that we read, the uh, prayer that we prayed. Uh, it's, we are taught by Jesus to pray this. It's the second line of the Lord's Prayer, and that is, Thy kingdom come. And again, it's second only to praying for God's name to be hallowed. The first request in the Lord's Prayer is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be reverenced. Let it be praised. Let it be worshipped. And we did that this morning. We worship the Lord and we praise the Lord. But it's only second to that. It comes right after hallowing the name of God. So what I'm talking about this morning is the word kingdom. I want to talk to you about kingdom. I mentioned to you last Sunday that uh, I did kind of a preface of this message. This is sort of an introduction and I have a feeling the introduction is going to last longer than just today. It'll probably go on into next Sunday as well. Over 10 years ago, I was asked to go to Spain and teach two times a year to uh, the G42 interns or students. I didn't choose the subject that I was asked to come and lecture about. I, I didn't even choose the title. If you go to the G42 website and you look at the teachers that go to G42, 
I'm one of them, and it tells you what the title of my lectures are. And I didn't choose that title. They chose that title for me. And the title and, and what's advertised on the website is Kingdom Eschatology. I was asked to come and lecture on kingdom eschatology. And to be honest, that's a huge undertaking. And, and when you take on something like this, people start considering you the expert on kingdom eschatology when you've done that now for, you know, it started in 2009. And so uh, I did it again this year, but we had to do it because of COVID. We had to do it uh, online. So I had to do my lectures at 7.30 in the morning. Was it 7.30? I think it was 7.30 in the morning uh, for several days uh, in May. But when you, when you do this, uh, and I've been doing this now for a lot of years, uh, I still get emails and questions and calls and so forth from students and even from some of the teachers. I was asked by one of the teachers one time, they got me off to the side, and they said, they said, I don't really understand the kingdom of God. Can you explain it to me? And so it's a word that we often use in, in Christian circles. We, we use it in our prayers, we just did, and we, we often uh, sing songs about the kingdom of God. But here's a question for you. Do, you. do we really understand what kingdom means? When we talk about kingdom, I believe that it's often misunderstood. And, and I hear it in common phrases that we might use. I remember as a young boy saying, you know, things like kingdom come, we would, we would say, you know, I'll be working on this on my room till kingdom come. You know, you heard that phrase before. I'll be working on this till kingdom come. I looked this morning just out of curiosity in the Urban Dictionary on, uh, on, on the uh, internet, and it gave the meaning of kingdom come or kingdom as the next world or the end of time. And that implies a, a future thing. That implies something in the sweet by and by or, or something that is not here now that we will experience one day. And that's why I'll be working on this till kingdom come, till, till Jesus comes back and, and we're in the kingdom and all of that. And to, me, to be honest with you, that definition of kingdom is very misleading and can cause a misunderstanding of key passages in the Bible. So I hope to change that for you. I hope, I hope that you begin to understand the word and the concept of kingdom as it is found throughout the Bible. And yes, it is true. Jesus did seem to speak about the kingdom more than any other uh, subject in the Gospels. Matthew alone, there are 48 different uh, times when kingdom is mentioned, and there's some familiar ones to you, for instance. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. Now, if, if kingdom is something future, something that is beyond us, something at the end of time, then how are we going to seek the kingdom of God unless we're just seeking something future that we'll never really arrive at until one day we, we get there? Matthew is where we find the promises of inheriting the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, etc. Or it, Matthew is where we find verses that talk about the, having the keys of the kingdom. And of course, Matthew 6 is what we just read and we prayed this morning in response to the disciples asking Jesus this question, teach us to pray. He says, pray this way. And then the, again, the second request is, pray this way, pray thy kingdom come. And it's toward, like I said, the beginning of this prayer. And we've all prayed this prayer 
countless times. I don't know how many times I've prayed this prayer, both publicly and privately, personally, to the Lord, but I've prayed it countless times, and there's something, every time I pray this prayer, there's something spiritual and powerful about it. I hope, I hope you feel that when you pray this prayer. It, it's, it's a prayer that connects us to our past because historically the church has prayed this prayer for 2,000 years. This prayer has been prayed. So it unites us to the church throughout history, but it also is a prayer that unites us to our brothers and sisters scattered around the world that we've, we've never met that they're praying this prayer wherever they are. So here's the big question, and this is what I hope to talk about over the next few weeks. And yes, this is, I, you know, sometimes I don't intend series, but then something, God speaks to me about something, and it turns into a series. Right now I'm calling it a mini-series. I don't know, I don't know how many messages this will be, but right now it's a, it's a mini-series. But what I want to do is I want to ask the question, what do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? What are we really asking for? What are we asking God to do? What are we praying for when we say, thy kingdom come? I, I hope to an attempt to answer that question. And perhaps by doing that, I hope to enlarge and embolden your asking for the kingdom to come. And then maybe also when you pray this prayer with knowledge and understanding, you'll pray it with more power and more fervency in your prayers. So in order to do that, and you know me, if you've been here for any length of time, I like to, I like to give a lot of background because to me, just to say, if I were just to spend you know, half an hour this morning saying, this is what thy kingdom come, you'd go away and get a little bit informed, but you wouldn't have the big, the whole package deal. You know, you wouldn't really understand the kingdom from God's perspective and from the biblical perspective. And so I want you to get the background so that when we do talk about thy kingdom come, you'll say, you'll, you'll understand it. You'll have some background, some history of the kingdom throughout the scriptures. So in order to do that, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you some background. Uh, and again, it's is this going to be a little mini series. We'll see as we go along. I'm in God's hands. Um, <clears throat> a wise man said to me many years ago. It was actually my dad in his car. He was driving. I was the passenger. He said to me in a in a little brief two line conversation. He said a line, and I said a line that was only. Uh, conversation we had about this particular subject, and that's a different story altogether. But he said a line that was true, and it was accurate. Uh, I didn't agree with his uh, conclusion about it, where he was going with it, and so I had one line that I responded, and that was the end of that dialogue, which was probably a good thing at the time. And we weren't angry, but it probably would have gotten into a lot of debate about a specific subject in the Bible. And I said more about that than I intended to. But here's, here's what he said. He said, you can't have a kingdom without a king. That was his remark. And he's right. You can't have a kingdom without a king. That statement is accurate. Every kingdom has a king. And every king has a kingdom. Now, I'm speaking this morning to a small congregation uh, but who are American citizens. And therefore, we didn't grow up in a country ruled by a king. We don't 
that's not in our experience. We don't, we don't get that in our experience. Now, we do have some concept from the Bible and from other sources what a kingdom would be like if we were to live under a king. In the Bible, there were, for instance, there were good kings, and then there were bad or evil, wicked kings. And for the most part in the Bible, when you would read about the good kings and the bad kings, what you would find is that when a, what the, the kingdom took on the character or the nature of the king. In other words, if the king was godly and therefore good, the people reflected that and they rejoiced. If the king was bad, the people would experience hardship and they would moan. The Bible actually talks about it, this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2. It says this, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Now, let's think about this in regard to the kingdom of God. God is a good God. God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. It should tell us something about God's kingdom. If a kingdom takes on the nature and the character of the king, then this should tell us something about God's kingdom. The kingdom ruled by God, and since God is love, the Bible says God is love, then he is the king of love. And his kingdom should reflect that. The kingdom should reflect God being the king of love. So let me get back to defining the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God simply means this, and it's going to take a bit more explanation, but I want to give you, I like giving short, easy to understand definitions, and it's not rocket science here. The definition is not going to blow your mind. Just very simply, the kingdom of God means the rule and the reign of God over his creation, that God rules and reigns over his creation. And that rulership began from the moment he spoke the world into existence. That rulership began then, and there's never been a time since God spoke the world into existence, there's never been a time when God has been dethroned. God has always been king. He always will be king. That kingdom, has, his kingship has never been threatened. Let me give you a verse on this. Proverbs, excuse me, Psalms chapter 29, verse 10. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. No matter what's happening in our world, be it floods or protests or whatever, no matter what's happening in our world, the Lord sat as king at the flood, okay? And the Lord is going to sit as king forever. He's never going to be dethroned or be put off his throne for any reason. So God did something very unique in the beginning when God started this whole thing and became king. He formed a creature that was to express his glory like no other creature could. God created the whole universe to express his glory. Uh, the, I think Psalm 19 verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utters speech, and night into night shows knowledge. There's no speech nor language where his voice has not been heard. So the Bible says all of creation expresses the glory of God. But he made this creature 
that was to express his glory like no other creature could. He, he made man in his image and after his own likeness. Now, I was, I was uh, thinking about some of these things this past week. And for some reason, all of a sudden, it just washed over me how deep this thing is. I mean, how, I mean I, I've known, and you, you, you hear me use this phrase often in, this, in, in, in church. I talk about us being image bearers. That's what we were made to do. We are, we are good at bearing images, and sometimes we bear the wrong image, right? So we're good at, we're good at image bearing. We were made to be the, bear the image of God. I want you just to consider for just a moment, and, and let's just pause and look at this with fresh eyes. And I want you to think for a moment about who we're talking about. When I say I bear the image of God, I want you to consider the image of God that we bear. I mean, what we're supposed to bear. God the Creator, the Mighty One, who wields all authority and all power, full of glory and majesty. A God of unspeakable grace and mercy and love makes man to bear that image. Think about that. This mighty God makes a man to bear his almightiness, his, his majesty, his glory, and all of its implications. This is who we are. This is what we were made for. This is to be our full realization as human beings. And then God does something else just as astonishing as, astonishing as making us in his image and to bear his image. He does something that I wonder, God... <laughs> Have you lost your marbles to even think about doing this? But God, what God did was not only did he make man in his image and after his likeness, but God delegates man as his authority over his creation. Here's, here's my authority over all the works of my hands. And we become kings in the earth and under the king of kings. It's a wonderful verse, wonderful passage in Psalm chapter 8. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. It's David in awe and astonish, astonishment of God. In astonishment just of what I was talking about. Because David begins this prior to this. David says, when I look at the heavens and the moon, the stars which you have ordained, he says, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than Elohim, than God. And you crown him. Listen to this, people. You crown him with glory and majesty. You crown man with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's amazing to me. That gives me chills just reading that and understanding what God has made us to be and to do. I said just a moment ago something about the glory and majesty of God, and you thought, yeah, God's glorious and He's majestic. But did you know we're called, we're called, we, said, we are said to be crowned with glory and majesty? Why should that surprise us? We've been made in the image of God, and God is full of glory and majesty. So why should it surprise us that David would say that we are crowned with glory and majesty. 
Man is made and created and then given and delegated authority as kings and priests in the earth to finish what God started with all the authority that God had granted. But then, as we know, we have that pesky Genesis chapter 3 incident. I was thinking about this yesterday, especially as I wrote in my notes, it's pesky, you know. It pesters me all the time. Every time I sin, every time I, you know, cross a line, or every time I do something, I'm thinking, Genesis chapter 3. You know, if you could go back and change any moment in history, that would be the moment. I mean, the reason we've got the stuff going on downtown and the reason why, and the, and the reason behind that, the, the injustice and so forth, all of that is because of Genesis chapter 3. When Satan came into the garden and offered to man what seemed like a better deal at the time, and man bought it. He, Satan lied to the man, and man believed the lie. And here's what happened, because this has to do with kingdom. At that moment, man abdicated his authority over the earth. He gave it up. He, man was set to be king in the earth and have authority and dominion crowned with glory and majesty. And at that moment when he obeyed Satan... He abdicated his authority over the earth, and it virtually stopped God's kingdom from advancing in the earth. Now, let me tell you what didn't happen then, because a lot of people get confused about this point. And, and hear me, because this is so important. Because I hear this in, 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 in way, the way people talk about Satan and, and God and, and so forth, and the battle and spiritual warfare and all those kinds of things. A lot of people get confused about this point. When man abdicated his authority, it didn't automatically go to Satan. A lot of people think that Satan got it. That's not what happened at all. It doesn't say that. Instead, what happened, God reached down, took the scroll of authority and said, I'll keep this until the one comes who can handle it. Because there'll be a man one day who can handle this scroll of authority. You see, some people believe that Satan is over this world and that there is this titanic struggle between God and Satan, almost that they are co-equal. And to be, to be honest, that is completely ridiculous. Satan is a created being. There is no contest. The, the Bible, there, there's a lot of times the Bible uses um, picture language to help us understand and the Bible talks about this creature several times in the Old Testament called Leviathan. It mentions him in, in uh, the book of Job and, and other places in the Bible, but especially in the book of Job, Leviathan, and describes him as this enormous dragon-like serpent, uh, sea serpent kind of thing, and it calls, him, it calls him a dragon, it calls him a serpent. But then at one point it talks about how God easily then takes a rope and puts it through his nose and puts a hook in his jaw and just drags him around, makes him do whatever he wants him to do. If, if Leviathan somehow represents Satan, that's how easy it is. And in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible talks about a chain being put around the neck of the serpent with such ease and being dragged across the universe 
displayed openly. There's no titanic struggle between God and Satan. As I said earlier, God has never nor will ever be dethroned. However, man has been dethroned, but never God. Man was dethroned in the garden. The real battle is between Satan and man, not Satan and God. The real warfare, man lost a battle to Satan in the garden, and he relinquished his authority over the earth. Not to Satan, but he relinquished it. Relinquished simply means to give it up. Didn't mean say who you gave it up to, but it was relinquished in the garden. He relinquished his authority. And from that point on, man has been influenced or had been influenced and harassed by Satan from that point on to where the Bible talks in the New Testament about being, being influenced by the, the course of this world and the, and the satanic influences. And I think it's in John chapter 8 where Jesus said, you were of the fa- your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. And so there is a, an influence and a battle between Satan and man, but never between God and Satan. And since man lost the battle with Satan in the garden and gave up his authority, it's going to take a man to defeat Satan and receive the scroll of authority once again. God's not going to do it. It's going to take a man. Since the battle is not between God and Satan, it's between man and Satan, then it's going to take a man to get that authority back. And throughout the Bible, you find Throughout the Bible, you find God giving man a chance in a way to win it back. God chose a man named Noah that was to, that was to be almost a redo, almost a new Adam, because he said the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam. He said, uh, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. After, after the flood, he told Noah to do that. Let's, let's start over. Let's see if, we, let's see if Noah's going to be the man, but Noah was not the man. He chose Abraham, but Abraham failed to get it back. He chose Moses, but Moses, again, ended without a victory. He, 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 he had to stand on Mount Pisgah and look over at the promised land, what could have been, what should have been, but didn't happen. And he died there on Mount Pisgah. He chose David, finally a man after God's own heart. Surely he's the one, he's going to be the one that does it. But David, too, failed to stand up to the wiles of Satan and sin. And God said, I can't let you even build a temple for me because you're a man of war. He said, I'm going to let your son do it. And so one by one by one by one, God is looking for someone, a man, who's going to stand up to the devil. What's God going to do? Man lost the battle. Man has to win it back. So God sort of goes on a search and you find God speaking through the prophets and seeking and searching for a man. I've got four verses I want to share with you to show you this. And I sought for a man among them. I looked for a man who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me. In the next verse. He saw that there was no man and was amazed that there was none, no one to intercede. Then it says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was shocked. This is God speaking. But there was no one to uphold. And then finally, Jeremiah 5.1. Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice 
and seeks truth. God was looking for someone to stand in the gap. Where will God find a man who will repair the broken down walls, stand in the gap, intercede, help, and uphold? Where will God find a man who will always do justly and seek truth, as this verse says? Where will God find a man who will stand up to the wiles of Satan and send him running instead of bowing to Satan as these men had done in the past? Where will God find that man? Part two next week. (laughs) I wanted to continue, but I could not do justice because what I'm going to say next is so powerful that it needed more time. So I knew I needed to end here. God is looking for a man. God is looking for a man. Of course, you, it's no surprise you know who that man is. You know the man who God finds who will do just, justly and seek truth. But I want to show you how Jesus stood up to Satan, which is going to lead us into what thy kingdom come means. Amen? I'm ready for this. Are you?